I go to the bath to the restroom every single time before I preach. I mean, the last thing you want to do is have to go to the bathroom while you're preaching, right? I am the kind of guy that would stop and be like, y'all, I have to pee really bad, so I'll be right back. <laughs> no. Then my, my son wanted to check the batteries in this. And then David was cleaning out the coffee maker that I left on since Thursday, so that is a dangerous thing. So I was told him the Lord showed me, showed me that so that I wouldn't forget and make a stupid mistake again on that. So just coming up so you can see how good looking he is. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for his study and his dedication to your word. We ask for blessings upon him as he brings a message and that he brings us encouragement and hope through the word of Jesus and our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, David. All right. So happy Mother's Day. How about that? So it's a great day. It's a day where you have to wait in line at Dunkin' Donuts for over 30 minutes to get one cup of coffee. That's not even a lie, is it? It's ridiculous. I barely made it in the door. Affirm my, my wife? Absolutely. You know, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm just messing. I'm messing around, right? I'm totally sorry. Sometimes I do that, and I do that on the YouTubes, and people think I'm arrogant. I'm just joking. I'm just having fun. All right. Can we have fun? We can have fun in, in church or wherever we're at. Is that right or no? We have to be really serious? I wonder what Je- I wonder Jesus' jokes. Like, did he have, was he like the greatest joke teller? I wonder. If, like, I would look, he has some pretty good ones in there. I'm just like, man, Jesus, you just, you just know how to tickle my funny bone. I made that funny bone. All right. Daniel chapter 11. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes we just get on the train, and I'm not sure where it's going, and it just keeps going. I am. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so hey, since it's Mother's Day, I was praying about what to, uh, what to, for us to look at, and it actually lined up pretty perfectly. Um, I was reading through Daniel chapter 11, which we're going to finish Daniel next week, probably the whole thing of Daniel next week, but the first couple verses actually bring up a king of Persia who is mentioned in another book in scriptures. So let's get there first. And then we're going to go over the whole book, but we're going to do it lickety-split. It's 10 chapters. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm just kidding. But I w- we will go through it. So Daniel chapter 11, I read verse 1 and 2 last week. I'm going to start on, on verse 2. And remember, there's a spiritual battle taking place, and Daniel's um, praying and seeking the Lord and fasting for 21 days. And he's seeking, and, he's, and this angelic being says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you understanding. And so... Daniel chapter 11, verse 2 begins that, now I will tell you the truth. So he's going to actually, we've been wanting more uh, specificity, haven't we? Like, give me more specifics. We're going to get that. We're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg today and then go into another book. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the king of Greece. So whenever he receives this, Daniel receives this, King Cyrus is the king in Persia. The next king in Persia is um, Cambyses II. The next one is Bardia. The next one is Darius I. And the fourth one that it's talking about is Xerxes I. Y'all know who Xerxes is? Almost universally, people believe Xerxes is King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. 
So we're going to turn to the book of Esther and look at that today. This is going to be so good in so many levels. I'm so excited to look at this, okay? Number one, if we look at Daniel, this is going to emphasize the last week. We had a really strong, like, remember God's promises. Remember and hold on to God's promises. Let's trust in God's promises. And we see that very strongly through the whole book of Daniel. But we get to see a people group in the midst of hearing these promises Daniel has promised that, hey, Israel, you're going to get through the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and so forth and so on. And yet, in the midst of that, the Jewish people are, they try to annihilate them in this book. So how, what do the people do when they receive God's promises? Do they just sit back on the couch and quote promises? Or do they begin to participate in the promises of God? And I love that. And we get to see the boldness of Esther that I love. She's so wonderful. But I love how it's so real that she was really scared when she did this. Doesn't mean she was less bold. Being bold means doing things even though we're really scared. So, beautiful book. Thought it would be great for for Mother's Day. So, at the very beginning, Esther chapter 1. I'm not going to read this whole thing like I said. Some of it I'm just going to kind of skim through some of these things and just kind of fill in the details and miss some of the details as well. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. Okay, so this is who, again, most everyone says was Xerxes I, the Persian ruler. I'm going to try to stand. My, my son said he was, for those of you on Zoom, he's like, Dad, you go back and forth so much. I have to keep following you on this camera. And Kyle understands that. Sorry, I'm a walker. I know. I'm a walker. Okay. I'm going to skip down to verse 3 where it says, so this is about Xerxes 1. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of, of Persia and Media. Remember, we're looking at Daniel, the Medes and the Persians would come in, so forth and so on. The nobles and the officials from the provinces, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. Isn't that crazy? Like, I guess we can think back to people like Nebuchadnezzar and all these kings. When they, you know, have a lot of stuff, they want to show people what I've got. He threw a crazy party for 180 days. It was so wild. I'm, I'm going to miss some of the details, but they had golden goblets. They had golden couches. In fact, in verse 8, it says, and some of you are going to love this, the drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. <laughs> so this is, such a, uh, this is such a banger, such a party. They're drinking from golden goblets. They say, you know what? You can have as much wine as you want, alcohol, whatever. It's flowing, baby. We're doing this. And Persian kings were actually known for this. So this is a crazy party. And this, what's interesting is, uh, to spoil, most of us know the ending, but Esther's going to marry this guy. And it really made me think through, like, the sacrifice. Because this is, Xerxes was not the greatest of guys, all right? I mean, he's throwing this, and there's, yeah, he's throwing this wild party. And she actually, that's just, it's a beautiful, she's awesome. So while she's doing that in verse 9, it says, Vashti, who is the current queen, has her own banquet for the ladies. All right, so on the seventh day, it says that King uh, that, uh, Xerxes, I'm going to keep saying that, and Ahasuerus probably, back and forth is the same person. It says, while he was feeling good drinking wine, anyone feel, been feeling good drinking wine before? Like we're in church, people be like, I ain't, ain't going to talk about that, but yes, it's pretty good. This guy was feeling good. He gets this really good idea. You know, sometimes when we're feeling good drinking wine, we get these great ideas, right? Here's his great idea. He's sitting there going, you know what? I tell you what, my wife is good looking. 
I'm showing all these people all this stuff. Look at this, you know, part of my kingdom, and look how powerful I am here. He gets a great idea. I'm going to show everyone how beautiful my wife is. Bring her in, boys. Bring her in. So they go, the eunuchs go to try to get Vashti, and it says that she was like, I'm not going to be your show pony, dude. <laughs> I'm not coming in. Because <laughs> he wanted her to come in with the royal crown, everyone to stare at her beauty. It says, and that is in verse 12, it said, but Queen Vashti refused to come in at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. So what happened? The king became furious and his anger burned within him. I mean, these kings got whatever they wanted. That's just the reality. They say jump, you say how high, you better jump or off with your head. I mean, they'll kill you, right? It's just going to happen. So um, Xerxes is used to getting anything that he wants. When his wife, the queen, doesn't do what he wants, he, he flips out, right? This is the man that Esther marries. <laughs> He flips out. And then he goes on, and they say, well, you know what? we got to do something about this. We're not just going to let this fly under the radar. So we see here that the king starts talking to some of his boys. Can you imagine this? The boys are sitting around drinking wine going, I can't believe that this woman usurped what, I'm supposed to, what, what, what I said. And so we got to do something. In verse 16 of chapter 1, it says that they said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all women. I mean, they just, just, they just go, I mean, they just keep, the train's just rolling off the track now. <clears throat> For all women, and cause them to despise their husbands, and so forth and so on. So they say, you know what, I'll tell you what, if we don't put this woman under our foot, then she's going to go have everyone coming against all these guys. This is a different day and age we live in, isn't it? I tell you what, it's good, though. <laughs> well, there are good things about this day and age, and there's bad things about this day and age, but that part's good. Um, so th- they figure they got to do something about this. they got to squash the, the, the rebellion of women. It's ridiculous. So they decide to write a law in the law of the Medes and Persians. And if we remember back to Daniel with Darius and the lion's den and all this stuff, when it's written in the law of the Medes and Persians, what happens? The king can't even revoke this law. So they're going to write this law, and it says in verse 19, Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and a royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. So this is where we're going to enter the whole story, what takes place here. King Vashti's out. And enter Esther here in just a moment. All right. Chapter 2, I'm going to read just a little bit of this. Verse 2 says, the king's personal attendant suggested. So this is after um, King Ahasuerus has cooled down a bit from his rage. And then his assistants say, hey, let's make search. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. I'll tell you what, if I was the king and I didn't have a wife, I would think that's, the, that's not a good idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> Bring all the beautiful young ladies and I get to pick. It's like The Bachelor 2,000 years ago, 2,500, however many years ago. You think that those TV shows are only happen today in day, days age. That's what happened. I mean, he's getting his, he gets his, his pick. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? That's wild. I wonder how Esther felt through all this. I, I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this all week long. Like, was she excited about this opportunity? Was she d- dreading this opportunity? Did she hate this? 
I, I, don't, I don't think I would have liked it. Unfortunately, I hate how we don't get in. We don't get a lot into Esther's feelings during this. I wish the. I wish that we could have gotten in like it would have, all these, these this pool and oh man, I didn't like this, but I did this for the Lord or whatever it may be. But it doesn't sound too exciting to have to potentially go marry this guy. Verse five, five. Enter Mordecai into the story. All right. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King uh, Jeconiah of Judah into exile. So remember when there was exiles that were taking place in the book of Daniel and stuff? Well, apparently Mordecai's family had been part of Jeconiah's exile. And now even though Cyrus had said you can go home, Apparently, Mordecai and his family have decided to stay. In fact, they've actually gone even further east to Susa. All right? So, again, these are Jewish man Mordecai from the tribe of Benjamin living in Susa, living in a place of exile. Okay, in verse 7, enter in the the hero, one of the heroes of the story, uh, Esther, Hadassah. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther. Because she had no father or mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So Mordecai and Esther were cousins, but apparently Mordecai was probably quite a bit older than Esther, and Esther's parents died. That's really sad, and to think, oh, to think through that and to think, man, that was awesome that Mordecai was willing to say, I'm going to adopt Esther as my own. And you see how much Mordecai cares for Esther through this whole book. I mean, he's like checking on her all the time. Like, he loves Esther. Just awesome to see God's hand moving in a tragic situation. Because um, I can imagine, I can only imagine how awful that was. I, we don't know how old Esther was when, his, when her parents died, um, but we know that it happened. Okay, um, so what happens now is basically Esther is going to come in and she's part of these young ladies, these young women that are being brought in before the king. But you get to see positively um, favor on Esther. Remember whenever Daniel gets exiled and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just shoot up really high like they have this favor and God's hand is on this. Do you all know that God is never mentioned in this entire book, right? And he's, most of us know that. He's never mentioned, there's no prayers mentioned or anything like that. But you see, and I think that was on purpose, but you see God's hand, this beautiful hand moving behind this. So um, Esther, probably not in a situation she's super excited about, to say the least. It does say that in verse 9, the young woman um, pleased him, and this is about Haggai, the guy that was over all the ladies and preparing them for the king. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven handpicked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. So you see that God's doing something. And we know later on that God is setting up to save the Jewish people in this. This This is a huge book, by the way. Purim, you guys know... Purim, if you celebrate Purim, that's what all of this is about. All of this is about. But in verse 10, it gives us kind of a hint into what's going to happen later on. And like a a window into the way people viewed the Jewish people during this time. In verse 10, it says, Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. So apparently the Jewish people weren't super viewed well, (laughs) weren't viewed super well. And so Mordecai said, listen, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. All right. 
But then you get to see the love, and then you get to see the love of Mordecai in verse 11. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what happened to her. Like, he loved her. He cared for her every day. He couldn't help but to go see what was going on, right? Now it becomes uh, Esther's turn to come in before the king. And we see again in verse uh, 15, towards the end of it, it says that Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. So like all these people who were seeing Esther, there was something special about Esther. And that's why I wish there was more information. I know it's not just she was beautiful. There was way more. There had to be way more to Esther to that. And I just, ah, I wish that we could get more into, uh, into that. But we do get to see part, like we do get to see a little bit of her character. But I want more. I guess one day I'll get to meet Esther and get to find out all this stuff. That'll be pretty sweet. Isn't that going to be crazy when the kingdom of God is on earth and the resurrection of the dead and we get to like hang out with these people and ask them what it actually, what they felt like? It's going to be wild. Okay, so in verse 17, she goes in before the king and it says, the king loved Esther more than all other women. She won more favor and approval for him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. A Jewish exile is queen of the Persians. That's crazy. That, only God can do that. Only God can raise Daniel to the positions that Daniel is raised. Only God can do what he did with Joseph whenever we read. I mean, it's just incredible to see that. I wonder if Esther's going, what is going on? Can you, ah, uh, uh, it's just crazy. And then we see God's hand, a sovereign hand, move with Mordecai while he's hanging out the king's gate. So while Esther is being crowned queen, we see that, Esther, uh, that Mordecai is hanging out the king's gates all the time. And guess what? He gets in on some pretty, inf- pretty important information while he's hanging out there, right? God's moving. His hand is moving. And he finds out two people are about to ass- try to assassinate Xerxes. And because Esther was allowing God to move in her life, whether she loved what was happening or not, she was in position for now Mordecai to go tell Queen Esther, hey, there's going to be an assassination on Xerxes, so can you go tell him? And guess what? She did, and they, those guys got hanged. How about that? But this part of the story is important for just a little bit later on. Really, really important for that. Um, but I just love to see the way that God's working together. He's always working like in groups of people and different things. And looking at the yieldedness of Mordecai and Esther together, I think that's just incredible. Now enters in the bad guy. All right, if you're ever part of a Purim celebration, you read this story, and when they say Mordecai, everyone goes, yeah! And everyone's like, got, you know, everyone's cheering. And when everyone says Haman, it's like, boo! Thanks, Jay. And like, you have these little noisemakers and stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty crazy fun, actually. Um, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman. Boo! Yeah, that was fun. Okay. So basically, it says. <laughs> Basically, it says that Haman comes in, and he's given a rank higher than any other official. And the king makes a command because Haman is so high now that everyone must bow down before Haman. All right? And then what happens? Mordecai, it says, would not bow down. So Haman would ride by or walk by, and Mordecai is supposed to bow down, and he doesn't. And what does that remind us of? It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It reminds me of those questions that we have is when we live in exile in other, in other societies, we're not called to just go rebel against them like I've said before, but also there's lines that are drawn. And right here, Mordecai says, you know what? 
he doesn't say it, but I'm thinking he's probably thinking, I will bow down to no one but Yahweh. I'm not going to bow down to, to this Haman. And so when Haman finds out, it says a couple things I'm going to read real quick. Um, so these people went and told Haman, and it says, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he told them he was a Jew. So now we get to see there's some absolute ton of anti-Semitism throughout this book. The people, these people are, do not like the Jewish people. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, When Haman saw Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. So Haman was just mad. And then on top of that, it says in verse 6, And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, I can't believe a Jewish person would not bow down before me. I can't, Mordecai wouldn't do it, and he's a Jewish. Oh, I cannot believe that. Seriously, did not like the Jewish people. We get to see that God's chosen people, like you read all throughout. We're reading, we can go and start in, uh, in, in Genesis and on, and on and to Exodus and all kinds of stuff, and we see that being chosen had its hardships. <laughs> and the Jewish people are constantly, people are trying to kill them and continue and trying to wipe them out and do all these things to them. And that's what happens here. It says, when he found out his ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. So he was like, I'm not even going to just do away with this Mordecai. It said he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. You can see a satanic spirit behind this right here. (laughs) This saying, I'm not just going to wipe out Mordecai. We want to wipe out every Jew. That's in the, in the midst of Persia entirely. Whew, that's really, really deep. Mm. So he goes before the king and, and gives him this um, idea. Hey, there's this, this group of people. And this is what people said about uh, Israel a lot in Scripture is they don't obey the laws quite like everybody else does, right? Remember, they, people would say that about the and they didn't like it. People don't like whenever the Jewish people wouldn't fully assimilate into the culture. Like, there are things that they did, but they're like, yeah, but they don't do this, and they don't do this. And even today, we're, it's kind of like that, too, right? And we have that wrestle. Like, we're in the culture and society that we're in, but we're also part of God's kingdom. And there's things that we do to reach our culture and stuff, but then we don't fully assimilate to the culture whenever there's lines that should be drawn because of the kingdom and what God's called us to do. And people don't like it. It's always been that way. <laughs> people haven't liked that since Israel back in the day. And that's what's happening. And the king, for whatever reason, approves of sending out an edict that says they're going to wipe these people out. Now, it doesn't say that he specifies that it's the Jewish people. He just says that Haman says there's an ethnic group of people that rebel, all this kind of stuff. Listen in, in chapter 3, verse 13, to this, um, to this edict. This is it's, it's horrific. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials. So these letters are sent to the officials of royal provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jewish people. Young and old, women and children. And to plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar in the 12th month. So can you imagine being Jewish when this edict goes out? That all, to all these officials saying, listen, you are allowed, telling the officials, go out there and kill the Jewish people. Kill women, kill children, and go take all their possessions. That's like bone chilling to think about. And then what happens is actually at the end of this chapter, it's just crazy to look at this contrast. It says, I'm going to read the end of verse 14 that says, the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city was thrown into confusion. So you see the the Jewish people heartbroken. The city, what is going on? What does this edict mean? And then you see old king 
who Esther has married, her husband, and Haman, throwing a little drinking party, hanging out and drinking. <laughs> it's this, this, and you just, I just, just sense like the Satan's power behind this and what he's trying to do. And what happens to the Jewish people? Mordecai goes into lament. The Jewish people go into lament. Mordecai goes crying through the city in sackcloth, in ashes. And when news comes to Esther in chapter 4, verse 4, it says Esther's female servants came and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. I love, this is where I love this kind of stuff because I love getting kind of a, a window into Esther and what was going on in her head. When she first heard this edict, it didn't say she arose and went, we are going to be okay. It said, I was scared to death. I was scared. And I love this because this is going to show us that, like I said before, being bold doesn't just mean, like, I know a lot of folks that have done some bold things, and I tell you, so many times I go talk to them, I said, how'd that go? He goes, I was scared, or she says, I was scared to death when I did that, but I did it. Like, sometimes we think these movie things, like, no one's afraid, and they just, ah. No, Esther was really afraid, and that's what I think makes it even more powerful, that what she's going to do, she's going to do despite being terrified, despite being afraid. It says that Mordecai goes and gives a copy of the decree to Esther, and after Mordecai spends time in fasting and praying, it doesn't say praying, but assuming that he did, and he's spending time because he's lamenting, and we see all that, he has something to give to Esther. He says, Esther, go read this. This is in verse uh, 8, and he has um, Hathak explain this to her, show it to her, and say, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. So after lamenting and doing all this, he says, listen, Esther, it's time. You need to go before the king and you need to share this. And again, you might think, Esther doesn't go, okay, let's go do it. Esther has a lot of concerns and I love getting to see that in here. I love how the disciples, it shows the difficulties they have, the challenges they have. That's why I love the scriptures because they're just real. What is Esther's response? Esther's response is in verse 11, and it talks about the royal law applies, and she says, but listen, every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty goes to them unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. So her response to Mordecai saying, hey, you need to go before the king, is she's like, hey, but listen, listen, if I go before the king and he doesn't extend that scepter, I am dead. I'm dead. Then we get to see Mordecai's response. So this is really cool to see this exchange. You know, the scriptures say like iron sharpens iron. We need each other. Esther needed a little push, right? Mordecai couldn't do this on his own, obviously. I just love watching the body work together. Here's Mordecai's response in verse 13 says, he says this to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. So listen, don't think that because you're queen, you're going to escape what happens to all of us. Then he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief, I love this, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people. Like he is confident. Like, listen, Esther, God, look at what Daniel's promised, Isaiah, look at all these prophets have promised that we would get through this. It's going to come. The Jewish people will not be annihilated. They will not be wiped out, Esther. It will come from another place, but you, your father's family, will be destroyed. Who knows, and this is such a famous line, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, they didn't even know. Esther didn't know what was going on. Like, she didn't know everything. God does that to us all the time. We always talk about that. He doesn't always give us the total end result of what's going to happen. He just asks us to be faithful and walk with what he's doing. 
And Esther and Mordecai are doing that. And Esther sense, I mean, Mordecai sensing right now and saying, encouraging Esther, Esther, do you know that you may be in this position that you don't like? Whether she liked it or not, probably not. For this time, for to save an entire ethnic group of people, to save the beloved people of God, Esther. That powerful. Such a time as this. I really meditated on this this week. I, I just love Daniel. I love Esther and Mordecai. And just this idea of seeing the promises of God, but recognizing that God's promises, as I mentioned earlier, are not just sit on my couch and quote promises. That God uses us to actively participate. And Mordecai saying that, like, hey, God's going to fulfill his promise, Esther, and if you want to participate, here's your opportunity. If not, he'll bring salvation another way, but here's your chance. And I think that invitation is extended to all of us. Like God has promises, he has plans, he has these beautiful things for us to do. And our job is to be like Daniel, is to, is to be like Mordecai, to be like Esther, to, be, to, to discern what God is doing and get on with what he's doing. To see the fulfillment of his promises. God uses people to do it. That's, a, that's huge. When I just sit around and just hope that something changes, we don't also force God's hand. We have to discern. What God, what are you doing? Is this the time that you're saving the Jewish people? God, are you taking us out of exile? Daniel prayed that. He found out through study and fasting in Jeremiah. Yes, it is, because it's almost into the 70 years. And then Esther, with all her fears, uh, in verse 16, I'm just going to read part of that verse. It says, after that, she says, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. What a beautiful line that Esther says, you know what? This is from the Lord. <laughs> she recognizes I'm in a place, I'm in this reason, and even if I die, it's so easy to read it in a story, you know, but reckon, no, I, even if I die, I'm going to go do this, you know. I think that, that's just so beautiful. And again, I love the way that Mordecai and Esther work together. Sometimes some of us need a little push. Sometimes we need to give a little push. Some of us give too many pushes, <laughs> But she just needed some encouragement to say, you can do this. You can do this, Esther, from her father figure. And she's like, yep, I can do it. Oh, but she has the brunt of it right now because she's the one. Mordecai is not the one that's going before. She's the one that's got to go before the king. So chapter 5 opens up. It says, Esther dressed in a royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. I can just imagine standing there as an Esther, like beads of sweat coming on, my hands being clammy. I mean, could you imagine knowing I could die right now? Like, being in that moment. Like, death is right here. And she, it says, as, she, as soon as the king saw her, then you see God's hand moving. Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached and touched the tip of his scepter. I can't, I bet the sigh of relief that Esther had whenever he extended that golden scepter, say, come on, come on in, Esther. That also showed that Esther probably had a special place in Xerxes' heart. And I, I just, and God's hand was just beautifully moving in this situation. Esther, just like Daniel, remember when Daniel, I mean, he would pray and fast on behalf of God's people. One thing I love about Esther is she's putting the people of God before herself. That is a huge principle to think about. She's not thinking of, she is, though she's scared, she's saying, you know what, I will put the people of God in more important than how I feel or what happens to me. Love it. A little bit of Jesus characteristic there, huh? Some powerful stuff. And his response is amazing. 
What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half of the kingdom will be given to you. The favor of God is in such a beautiful time here, I mean place here, that says, you know, even half of the kingdom. But even in the midst, I never thought about this before. I wonder if even though I said that the favor of God, what if it's a temptation of the enemy? Have you ever thought about that? Like right before she's going to talk and try to bring salvation to her people, she hears, you can have half the kingdom. Could you imagine the president saying, Larissa, you can have half of the United, you get whatever you want. And her choosing, choosing to not go, well, I would, oh, well, that's a horse of a different color. I'll take, uh, I'll take some money. I'll take some more power. That even in the midst of being offered, she will be offered three times half of the kingdom in this thing. Three times she'll be tempted with that, with that offer of you can have half of the kingdom. Three times she decides to go for the people of God and yield herself to what, God, to what God's doing to bring salvation to the Jewish people. Isn't that incredible? So her response is, if it pleases the king, let you and Haman come, and I'm going to do a banquet for you, right? So that's what Esther does. She throws a banquet for Haman. And Haman is riding sky high. He's loving. He's like leaving this place filled with joy, like, oh, my gosh, the queen's throwing a banquet for me, throwing a banquet, just me and the king and the queen, and I'm getting, oh, man, this is fantastic. And then as he's going home all excited, he passes by that Mordecai who doesn't bow down before him, and he is enraged. And I thought to myself this week, how often are we like Haman? We can have everything going great in our lives. We can have, man, all kinds of great things, but that one thing that's not going great, we are fixated on. And it will be his demise, actually. His hatred of the Jewish people and his fixation on this one Jewish man that won't do it actually becomes his demise. We can have five, six, ten people at our work say, you did a great job today, Beverly. But that one person that says, yeah, I don't like you too much, will get in a thorn in our side. And we will focus on the one person that said something negative rather than the ten people that said something positive. And that's what Haman's doing. Haman's in such a pity party, he goes home and starts whining to his wife. Oh, this Mordecai, he won't, he won't you know, bow down before me. As he's doing that, he not only talks to his wife, and he talks to his friends, and they give him this idea, hang a gallows and go hang him. Get Mordecai hung on the gallows. This will be the st- one of the stupidest things that Haman has ever decided to do. <laughs> hey, make sure that the company that you have ain't stupid. Make sure that you're not getting advice from stupid people. Am I allowed to say that? I'm just... Esther's smart. She gets advice from a wise person. Haman's stupid. He gets advice from dumb people. Esther will live. Haman will die. End of the sermon. (laughs) There is a lot to that, just to be real. There's a lot of truth in that. Who you're hanging around really affects you, all right? Then you continue to see, we're almost done here, but you see God's hand because for some reason the king can't sleep that night. After the banquet's over, Haman's complaining to his wife and to these people, and the king can't sleep. So the king, I guess to go to bed, he wants to hear records read to him. Like many of us read the Bible to go to bed, right? Because it makes us fall asleep. Don't lie. Don't act like that's not true. Some people are like, man, if I, I, read about, I read about three verses and I'm out. <laughs> I read the same paragraph four times before I finish it, then I put it down. I'm just kidding. 
As he's reading the records, he reads the record of when Mordecai saved his life and goes, what the heck? We haven't done anything for Mordecai. Haman's hanging around. He calls Haman and says, Haman, what do we do for the person who the king wants to honor? And Haman is so dang arrogant, he thinks it's all about him. He's like, well, it must be me. <laughs> so Haman, man, he's, he's hanging himself here. I mean, this is, this, is what, this is what he's doing. His own pride and arrogance and hatred is killing himself. Haman has this idea in verse 7, says, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment on the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man uh, uh, the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square. Proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And he's just smiling and so excited. And then his heart has to drop when the king goes, go do that for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> There's the ironic twist now. It looks like the enemy is winning right through this story. All of a sudden, now you see it start to turn. And I mean, can you imagine the one thing, the thorn in his side, the king goes, now go do that for Mordecai. I bet he would, I bet he just flipped inside. I bet his spirit dropped. I bet he was like, what? Are you kidding me? So he does it, right? And I think this is interesting. I'm going to read this, that his wife, in verse 13, it says, Haman told his wife, uh, Zeresh, and all the friends, everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. So apparently when he was complaining, he may not have clarified that he was Jewish because they found, isn't this crazy to see that his wife and stuff recognize even in the midst of exile that there's something powerful about this God of the Jewish people? <laughs> and they said, hey man, you went against the Jewish people. That's your downfall right there. That's your downfall. It's, in, that's, oh man, that's just, it's so important. It's so important. I, I know that some of our theology doesn't believe that the Jewish people are still important today. Um, and if it doesn't, I would just say, just be careful. <laughs> because we don't want to ever be found going against the people of God. <clears throat> and that's what was going to happen. I'm not saying I'm right. I think I'm right. But I would just say, be cautious about the way you approach that. So Queen Esther throws another party and here again, she's offered half of the kingdom. And I'm just going to read this. And she says in chapter 7, verse 3, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. So even though Esther has come before the king and extended the scepter, she still has a very difficult thing to do right here. And she has to ask for the, like, this, the, the difficulty is not over. This is my desire for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. So she's listening. If we would have been sold to slavery, I would have been silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't burden, be worth burdening the king. But Ahasuerus' response, he spoke up and said, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? There was so much tension in the room right now. Esther answered, Point, I'm sure she points, the adversary is this evil Haman, and I bet Haman went white as a dead ghost at this moment. Like, you had gallows hung for Mordecai, you're planning the extermination of the Jewish people. You can't go against God's people, it's just, it's not going to work. <laughs> God will save his people. Isn't that beautiful promise for us? 
Isn't that, I mean, seriously, no matter all hell comes against, God will, pre- will preserve his people. That doesn't mean that we don't play a role in that, though, does it? Because Esther and Mordecai, they're playing a role in God's salvation of his people. Whoo! Haman is terrified, and then he makes an even more boneheaded thing. He doesn't mean to, but Esther's like reclining on the couch, and, you know, the king stomps off mad. He's freaking out. He runs and falls on Esther. Well, that was stupid, because the king comes in and goes, what are you doing to my wife? (laughs) Like, I mean, he's like, what what in the world? Dunzo. Mordecai, you're done. I mean, I, I mean, Haman, you're done. Excuse me. And to make a long story short, Haman, with his evil hatred for the Jewish people with his repulsion of Mordecai is overcome with that hatred and bitterness and he's dead and all 10 of his sons get hanged and on the same gallows that Mordecai was hung I mean that Haman was that he prepared for Mordecai Haman is hung and remember that song do you guys remember that song that I played that one time I love the thought of this that this the gallows the hell that the devil has for us he will burn in for forever He will do the same thing that happened to Haman. His evil, his hatred, his bitterness, he's hanging himself. He's burning himself. Oh, man, that's fire because you don't come against the people of God. You don't come against the promises of God. And yet, so for us, very practical, we ask the questions. We're encouraged. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by an exile, Esther's boldness before a king to overcome fear, to overcome challenges. And I, I ask myself this week, are there things that I'm afraid of that I know God's calling a people or uh, something for me to do and that I've just kind of sat back in fear and not done? And that maybe I just need, we just need a little encouragement from the word, just as Esther's needed a little encouragement to be bold, man. What a beautiful woman. Just, man, I love, I love what she did. I, I love that she had a heart for the people of God over herself. That's what love is. I was, I, was, I was talking, listening to someone speak this week, and they said, you know, what Jesus told Peter, three times, kind of interesting, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? And his response isn't, tell me you love me. His response isn't, sing me a worship song, Peter, if you love me. His response is, go feed my sheep. Go do the hard work of feeding sheep. Go do the tough work. See, oftentimes we want to respond to God in love the way we want to respond to him rather than the way he receives love. And right here we see a a woman who is willing to, to lay down herself. That is feeding the sheep. That is saying, I am going to risk my life. I am going to lay down my luxuries. I'm going to do this for the people of God. We see her doing it. We see Daniel doing it. We see Mordecai doing it. And I am just, just in love with that. We wonder why Daniel, Daniel, such, you're a treasured man of God. He's pouring his life out for the people of God. If we want to get to God's heart, we need to love him and love his people really hard. And loving him and loving his people isn't just singing songs on Sunday morning. Isn't just, uh, you know, telling God, I love you, God. No, it's doing difficult things. It's getting into the plans and promises of God and walking in obedience and doing scary things and doing tough things and difficult things that God calls us to do. It's tough. But we're invited into that. And we're invited into the realization that, again, God is going to protect his people and keep his people despite horrible things have happened to the people of God. Martyrs and all kinds, genocide, all kinds of crazy things have happened, but God has kept his people, and we also have the beautiful, the beautiful promise that Yeshua, that Jesus, our King, is going to return. What do we do with that promise? We just sit around saying, oh, it's good, thank you, Jesus, you're coming back. No, we get on to the work. 
we get on to preparing people for the return of the king so that when he returns, our friends and relatives and people aren't running away scared to death because people will run away. He's coming back, and he's coming back, and it is not good for those who don't follow him. But we can, but we can prepare a people that can say, yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and truly mean it from their heart. Thank you. Our king has finally come. Our king has returned. Oh, so what do we do with the promises? Mm, man, I love it. I love it. Let's listen to the voice of God while the worship team comes up here. Um, thank you for everyone who, partic- who uh, participated last week as we listened to God's voice. Thanks, Bethany, for being the little crack in the ice for us last week. <laughs> we don't recognize like what, you know, what we say. We may think, man, it's awesome. But there may be moments where we go, I think this is from God, but it doesn't feel like it's so great. I've had those moments. I've had times where I've preached, and I'm like, yeah. And then some people will be like, that was just exactly what I needed to hear from the Lord. So if we feel like we're hearing from the Lord and he wants us to share something, let's do it. Let's share it because you don't know what you say might truly deeply impact somebody. So let's just spend a few moments here listening to the Lord.